On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Father, as we come to your word this day in Jeremiah, we pray, Father, that you would show us great and wonderful things, even from the severe words that we will see. Father, would you guard me from error and would you grow all of us uh, more in Christ's likeness in this day, even as we see uh, what you have to say to Judah and to Jerusalem in their disobedience. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. What I read at the beginning of um, my prayer was Psalm 87, and you heard the psalmist's uh, proclamation of just how special and glorious the city of Jerusalem is, uh, how she is the chosen jewel. Uh, the Lord had uh, early on said, this is where uh, I want my people to worship me. This is where the ark should be. This is where the temple should be. This is where my people should gather. This is my crown jewel. Uh, and people were even uh, making a big deal out of those who had been born in Jerusalem, that this was a special thing. This was a glorious thing. And today, uh, in Jeremiah 2 through 25, uh, we are going to find Jerusalem and, and Judah in an entirely different situation. Uh, after centuries of disobedience uh, and turning to the gods, though they are no gods, of the land, uh, God is putting uh, Judah and really all of his people on trial. And he is passing judgment uh, upon them to tell them of, of what, will, what will certainly come to pass. And as I prayed, these are, these are hard words um, from a holy and severe but merciful God. And uh, so I invite you to, to turn to Jeremiah 2 with me. Just a quick review. And last week in Jeremiah chapter 1, we saw uh, the context of Jeremiah's ministry. We saw his call and we saw the calamity that he was uh, about to declare and Jeremiah chapters 2 through 25 is almost exclusively prophecies against Judah and Jerusalem, very specifically, and to Israel as a whole. God's people, as I've mentioned, are on trial here. And in these chapters today, we are going to think of this like a bookshelf of chapter 2 through chapter 25. And we're going to spend most of our time at the bookends. 
we're going we're gonna to be in chapter 2, and then we're going to zip down to the other end of the bookshelf and look at, at chapter 25, and then, uh, Lord willing and time allowing, uh, we will pluck a few books off and, and crack them open and look at a few things uh, along the way in between. Uh, but all of those things are in your notes, even if we don't get to talk about them. Um, but chapter 2, the beginning of this section, uh, which is probably taking place pretty shortly after a Jeremiah's call, is in the form of Yahweh bringing charges against Israel. He is bringing charges, just like a prosecutorial uh, attorney. He is bringing charges against Israel for forsaking him and for going after idols. And chapter 25, at the other end, uh, Yahweh is now passing sentence in clear detail. He will, we will see him passing sentence upon Judah in striking, vivid, dramatic detail. Uh, so let's start in uh, Jeremiah 2. I asked you to turn, and I didn't myself. We'll get there together. Okay. So Jeremiah 2 uh, is written in, in the format of a royal prosecutor's case using terminology that would be the, the, the leaders of that nation. If they would have heard Jeremiah proclaim these things, they would have said, oh, this is a, this is, uh, we're on trial. This is an attorney who's taking us to task. Uh, we're, we're in trouble. Uh, this is going to go badly for us. Uh, the king's counsel in this setting would, would bring the charges and he would appeal to heaven and earth itself as witness against the defendant. And as Jeremiah brings this indictment from the king of kings, the people would no doubt know what's happening, even if their ears were stopped from truly understanding and repenting. They knew what was happening before them. So let's start in the first three verses of Jeremiah 2, speaking of their early devotion. The word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt, disaster, came upon them, declares the Lord. And so the Lord is reminding Israel of better days, of these days immediately after uh, the exodus, um, when, when she, Israel, was devoted. Uh, this is the word that we see all over the Old Testament, hesed, that their devotion, their steadfast love and faithfulness to the Lord was great and it was, it was clear. Um, and she followed the Lord wherever he led. Uh, implied in is that that devotion and love are now no more. Much like uh, the uh, church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, verse 4, that, that she has lost her love that she had in the beginning, her first love. Uh, verse 3, not only uh, was Yahweh Israel's God, but Israel, they were her people her first fruits, and anyone who messed with Israel uh, got it. They, they were in trouble. 
Uh, no one trifled with them. No one could stand before the Lord's first fruits. Okay, let's, uh, let's move on in verses 4 to 8 because the, the uh, action changes quickly. Hear the word of the Lord, verse 4, O house of Jacob and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? And went after worthlessness and became worthless. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, You defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Now you probably can remember when you were a child that if your parents started asking you questions, it was not going to go well with you. Uh, when you've, you hear, haven't we talked about this before? Uh, have, I, have I not told you not to hit your brother on the head like that? Right? When those questions come, those rhetorical questions, you know that, uh, that it's, uh, it's not going to go well with you. And the same is true when, when God is asking questions. In the scripture, uh, when he asks a question, he is seeking transformation, not information. He is seeking transformation, not information. And by that I mean, he, when he asks a question of his people, is seeking that they would examine their own hearts, that they would confess their sins, that they would recognize their disobedience, and that they would turn to him. Uh, the Lord is, is not trying to understand. When, when he asks, what wrong uh, did your fathers find in me? Uh, he's, he knows that there was no wrong in him, that, that he is faultless, and it was merely and completely their sin that they, that they abandoned him. Um, a second part that I want you to see clearly here, uh, this is so important, from the end of verse 5. They went after worthlessness and became worthless. Explain that to me. What, what, what is happening here? They went after worthlessness and became worthless. How would you, what other words might you say about that? Carl? Uh, they walked after idols. They walked after idols, that's right. Well, idols which are nothing, right? And, in, and as a result, they became like them, right? So here's the principle. Uh, I don't think that this is a fill in the blank, but this is worth writing down. Um, you become what you behold. You become what you behold. Uh, the scriptures are clear about this, and this is, this is one of the several places. Um, turn with me, if you would, to... Psalm 115. 
Psalm 115, verses 4 to 8. This is speaking of the nations. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Uh, and the principle here is those who seek that which is empty become empty themselves. Uh, if you are seeking and beholding after the Lord of uh, the universe, you will be conformed to the image of Christ. But if you are seeking after that which will not profit, you yourself will become unprofitable. Uh, second... Uh, a couple other passages we won't read but are worthy of jotting down. Psalm 135, 15 through 18, and Isaiah 44, 9. Psalm 135, 15 through 18, and Isaiah 44, 9. Again, on this principle that we become what we behold. And if you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians three eighteen. You will see the flip side of this in, in spectacular clarity, I hope. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. Earlier in this chapter, uh, Paul has written about um, that, that uh, we are not like Moses with a veil over his face, and he talks about that veil remains unlifted. But now he says in verse 18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, right? So this is what we are beholding, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So again, you, you become what you behold, whether for good or for ill, whether for blessing or for curse. So the question is, is not, are you beholding? Because we know that we are all beholding something. We are, we, are, we are built to worship, and every one of us worships something all day long. The question is, what are you beholding? Is it, is it something that is drawing you towards the Lord? Is it something that's taking you away from the Lord? Um, what, what are you beholding, and uh, what... Is it that you are becoming? I let you answer that in the silence of your own heart and counsel with the Lord, but it's a question that uh, don't let that just slide off your plate and, and walk away um, without addressing that uh, with the Lord. Okay, we're going on to verses 9 through 13, changing gods. <clears throat> Jeremiah 2, verses 9 to 13. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people 
have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. <clears throat> so the Lord um, says that he will contend, and he's a, he is, as we've said, bringing charges, laying them in front of Israel. And some details are coming into focus here. But before he does, he, to, to describe the gravity of this situation, um, Jeremiah begins to bring to, as witness, all of creation. <clears throat> he says, look to Cyprus, an island way out in the west, in the, in the middle of the Mediterranean. Look to Qadar, all the way in the Arabian desert in the east. Has anything like this ever happened? This, this is astounding that a nation would change her gods. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he calls on the heavens to be appalled, to be utterly shocked, and to be desolate because of the evils that his people, the Lord's people, have committed. They have made a great exchange, but it's not Luther's great exchange. It's nothing like this at all. What's great about it is how horrific it is that they have exchanged the God who made them, who has cared for them, who has led them every step of the way for gods who are no gods whatsoever, for the gods, the idols of the people. So the two evils are really two sides of the same coin because, again, uh, we will always behold something. We, we, we will not spiritually live in a vacuum. We will be worshiping something. And so when the people of Israel forsook um, Yahweh, they put in place um, the, the emptiness of the idols of the land. Uh, Jeremiah brings this water metaphor uh, into play, saying that, that Israel has turned away from the fountain of living waters the fountain of living waters. And uh, there is a typo on your page. Can you tell me what it is in that line? Yeah. Ah, it's not the indefinite article. The Lord is not a fountain. Well, he is a fountain of living waters, but he is also the fountain of living waters. To be the, you also have to be a. But, but yeah, the Lord is both. Uh, so apologies for that. That They have forsaken the fountain of living waters. Thank you, Debbie. Glad you're on that. <clears throat> um, and the, the picture here is, is right, what, do we, what do we think about when you think of a fountain of waters describe that for me maybe if this were preached or taught in August or September you'd be thinking more about uh, how sweet a fountain of living waters might be but what, what, what comes to your mind with a fountain of water it's refreshing, it's refreshing. that's right it's life, yes. A gushing, spring. a gushing spring, right? So this is moving water. It's flowing. There, there. At, at least within this description, there is there is no end to the supply. It's accessible. It's just right there. A fountain of living waters. Have you heard that term anywhere else in the scriptures? I bet you have. 
Anybody think? Where else? Where else have you heard? Sorry? Jesus at the well. Thank you, Pace. Yes, John 4. Right. <clears throat> and, uh, and also, we will see it in Jeremiah 13, or sorry, 17, 13, and uh, in Psalm 36. So not an uncommon uh, picture of, of the Lord as the fountain of living waters. Um, and in all cases, uh, this is the very best picture of water that you could have, uh, of a fountain of living water that's just fresh and flowing and accessible and ready for you. Uh, the land of Israel is arid. I mean, you've seen pictures even today. Just, you know, everything's brown, right? It's like Central Valley of California. Everything's brown except where there's water, right? It's like this country will be in August. Everything's brown except for where there's water. Yeah. And what had they... They had, so, so Israel had forsaken uh, this fountain of living water, and instead, what had they done? They got out their pickaxe, <laughs> and they dug a hole in the ground, busting through the rock to make a dugout or a, 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 a soil pool, trying to direct the occasional rainwater that comes into this for storage, so that there would be water there. And when you made, that, when you made a cistern like that, you also coated it with, uh, you took the limestone and you mushed it all up and you, you made a paste out of it and you plastered the inside so that it wouldn't leak. However, the, uh, in this image, the, the Israelites' cistern that they had worked so hard at uh, was leaky. So whatever water showed up, uh, even if it was there, would be nasty and stale and stagnant and filled with newts and bugs and all sorts of nasty things because every creature around would come and drink from it and do other things that creatures do. But it, there isn't even water there. It's dry. It won't even hold water. So this is, Jeremiah couldn't be more stark with the image of what uh, the, the two evils that Israel had, had performed in forsaking the fountain of living waters and then in their pride and their hubris thinking, well, I can do just as well or I can do better. I'll just dig out my own little thing here and, and make my own water source with my own strength. <clears throat> so a quick question for us. Uh, what, what leaky cistern, cisterns are there in our lives today where where is the temptation to trust in our own strength to turn away from the fountain of living waters any come to mind yes phil sure sure so our, our jobs, sorry, I'll get this for everyone. Our jobs, our family, neither of which are bad things, by the way. Right, sure. Thank you. Others? Our health. That's right. Yeah, we can trust in our health. Well, at least I have my health. Right? Um, what else? 
How about our freedoms? Right, here we are in this nation. We love being in this nation. I do. Anyway, I can't speak for you. Love being in this nation. I'm thankful for the Lord that he has chosen to put me here at this time. I'm, I'm grateful for that, for the freedoms that are afforded, uh, for the opportunities that are afforded. But, but uh, at the end of it all, uh, this, this nation uh, can hold water no better than any other leaky cistern. And it is, it is a fine and wonderful thing to be grateful for God's gift. But, but our nation, our health, our job, our family, our pile of cash, or whatever it is might be, uh, are, are not uh, a fount, are the fountain of living waters in our lives. They are not the thing that we can eventually and fully trust in. Yes, please. Our religion, right. Sure. Sure, right. Yeah, so, so yeah, the, the difference between religion and faith, you know, the Christian faith is, you know, our religion is that we think that we're doing something that earns us points with the Lord, right? And our faith is acknowledging that we stand humble before him who has given us all things and, and that we bring nothing to him except our own sin and that to be forgiven, put away with. Thank you. Yeah, that's almost meddling, but yeah, we'll take it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so, so uh, let's move on. Uh, we'll never get to the other bookend. Um, Jeremiah 2, verses 14 to 19. The questions continue from the Lord, from the prosecutor. Is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They've made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tapanis have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. And so, as I said, the questions keep coming. Uh, you're, you're my people. I freed you. Why is it that you act like slaves to someone else? Uh, verse 17, you, you brought this on yourselves. Verse 18, uh, you are placing your trust, seeking your strength in all the wrong things, all the wrong places. And uh, verse 19, chastisement and reproof will be upon you. This is what the Lord does uh, with his people when they disobey. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that. I, we'll make every effort to get to, to this, that, that uh, the Lord does not make a complete end of his people and remains merciful, though he will make Jerusalem and Judah utterly desolate. Quickly note, uh, Lord God of hosts at the end of 19. This specific title, it simply means this is, this is Lord Sabaoth. 
the Lord of hosts, the, the, the Lord over the hosts and armies of heaven. Um, and it's used um, over 80 times just in this book. It's just an interesting thing that Jeremiah is reminding his listeners and us over and over and over again that this God whom you have forsaken is, is the God of the armies of heaven. And he will do exactly as he pleases. Okay, um, on to uh, vivid pictures of this rebellion, not all of which I'm going to read out loud. I read every word of Song of Solomon, but I'm not going to read every word of Jeremiah to you, not even in this section, uh, starting in verses, verse 20. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree you bowed down. Verse 21, yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, I am not unclean? I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done, a restless young camel running here and there. Verse 25, keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they say, arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as the cities are your gods, O Judah. These are uh, just incredible pictures that the Lord is putting before his people. Uh, in verse 20, that they are an untamable beast that simply refuses to serve. Even after the Lord had broken the yoke of Pharaoh and Egypt off of them, they refused the Lord's yoke uh, thereafter. Uh, verses uh, 20, 23, 24, uh, they are driven by their insatiable and illicit passions, um, going forth without uh, remorse uh, or shame. Um, the common thread here uh, is, is with Hosea. We haven't talked about Hosea yet, but uh, you will see the influence and some, some common things here between uh, Jeremiah and Hosea in that Hosea tells us and paints the picture in his book that spiritual idolatry is, is akin to spiritual adultery. It's, it's the forsaking of the covenant, uh, the vow um, of, of faithfulness and love. And uh, so this is the same thing Jeremiah is bringing here. Uh, verse 21 uh, Judah is described as a perfect vine. God is the perfect uh, vine dresser. 
He, he planted pure seed. He did everything right, and the vine has gone wild. 22 and 23, they're stained and unable to be clean. Uh, 26, they will have the shame of the thief upon them. And then points out the ridiculous nature of their idolatry um, and asks, where, where are your gods now? What, how will they help you in your time of need? All right. Let's finish out Jeremiah 2, uh, verses 29 to 37. Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain have I struck your children. They took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say, we are free, we will come no more to you? Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How well you direct your course to seek love, so that even to wicked women you have taught your ways. Also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in, yet in spite of all these things you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying I have not sinned. How much you go about changing your way. You shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. From it too will come away, from it too you will come away with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust and you will not prosper by them. So the Lord's guilty verdict here is, is declared on several fronts, um, that Israel has rebelled against Yahweh, uh, even killing Yahweh's messengers. And don't miss uh, the, the irony here that Jeremiah, a prophet to Judah, is reminding them that they have killed prophets, right? So think about the courage just that, the, that Jeremiah has in speaking the truth that Oh, these people who, are, who have done what I'm doing right now, you have, you have killed. Uh, they have turned away from uh, her bridegroom, uh, figuratively shedding the adornments of the, of the bride. So this would be like the bride walking out of the ceremony and pitching the bouquet and pulling off the ring and throwing it aside and, and just saying, no, no more of this. I'm, I'm not identified with that man anymore. Um, They've become a teacher to the wicked. They have innocent blood on their hands. And that God's judgment is coming. So just to quickly recap uh, this chapter, as Yahweh has brought charges uh, against Judah, they have broken covenant. They have gone after other gods, which are no gods. They, uh, having gone after things that are unprofitable, have become unprofitable themselves. Throughout all of this, uh, it, it has affected everyone from, from the everyday uh, person in Jerusalem and Judah all the way through the leadership, the priests, the, the, the keepers, of the, the leaders of the law, the prophets themselves, uh, the shepherds. And they have allied themselves with the people of the land, Assyria and with Egypt as well. And so just a summary of that, you'll see at the bottom of your, your notes uh, a quick prayer, if you were, that 
May the Lord grant that our hearts remain stayed on him, that we would be supremely satisfied in the Lord, and that we would be quick to confess, to repent, and to return when our hearts are prone to wander and to leave the God we love. So all of that is the first bookend. <laughs> and in the next 10 minutes, we'll uh, get some time on the second bookend. Um, chapter 25, the other end of this section of, of Jeremiah, uh, Yahweh is passing sentence in, in vivid detail upon Judah. Um, and let me just read the first seven verses of Jeremiah 25. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and his evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do to you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declared the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Okay, so just from this pointing out, we have this repetition in here. That for 23 years, Jeremiah says he has been speaking persistently, continually, along with other prophets, evidently, that we don't have in, listed in Scripture, calling on Judah to turn. But she would not listen. She wouldn't even incline her ear. She wouldn't, wouldn't even bend her ear to consider what was being said. And now the Lord is provoked to anger. Um, the repetition on each one of those things. Let's go on to verses 8 through 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my word, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Don't miss that. My servant. And I will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. That is to say, everything that's good uh, about living in Jerusalem the industry during the day, the lights are on at, at night, right? The neighbors are up and we can go visit the lights of the lamp. The, the, the place is going to become a ghost town. Uh, there, there will be nothing there. And no brides, no bridegrooms, no mirth, no gladness, no industry, no, no lights. The whole land shall become a ruin and a waste 
and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. So I, I pointed out um, that Nebuchadnezzar is referred here as, as my servant and, and that he, Yahweh, names him and Babylon as his instrument of judgment. Uh, we do not have the time to get through the remainder of this chapter because uh, I need to get to you some of the books that are in between this bookend and that bookend. Um, but uh, just don't, be, don't let it slip that the precision with which the Lord is declaring through Jeremiah, it is this nation and this king and this amount of time that is now, the, the die is cast, as it were, for you, that this will come to pass. But I want you to see uh, in, your, in your notes, um, I have six different sections uh, within uh, this, this part of Jeremiah pointed out, just themes that you'll want to see. And, and I want to just draw our attention to the first one listed, a promised restoration. And I want you to see that even in God's wrath, the Lord will not forsake his own covenant. And so uh, look with me at Jeremiah 5, verse 18. And I have plenty of other examples listed there for you as well. Jeremiah 5 begins by talking about, in, in, in detail again, of the unwillingness of Judah to repent and the um, nation of Babylon, how they will come. If you look in verse 6, a lion from a forest will strike them down, a wolf from the desert, a leopard is watching their cities. And he continues to describe this nation that's coming for them in verse 14. Verse 15, Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, it is an enduring nation, it's an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds, eat up your vines and your fig trees, your fortified cities in which you trust. They shall beat down with the sword. So, it's, so this, is, this is complete devastation promised from the Lord. But verse 18, But even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. I will not make a full end of you. And so even in the complete destruction of the land of the city of Jerusalem, the Lord remains faithful to his covenant, and he will continue to sustain a remnant of his people, the line to the Messiah, 
uh, and keep his part of the covenant uh, forever. Uh, he, he remains faithful. Uh, you'll see, uh, I think in the notes I've given you, Jeremiah three fifteen to 18. Uh, I will give you shepherds after my own heart. You'll see even in Jeremiah 23, there is a reference to the Messiah that, that I will raise up for David a righteous branch. So even in the midst of this section, which is almost exclusively uh, prophecies of woe against Judah and Jerusalem, the Lord reminds his people that they are his people and that he will not make a complete end of them and that he will keep his word, his covenant um, in all things. There is so much more I'd love to talk about, but eventually Dan's going to want to preach. Kyle's is going to want to start singing. Um, I do, I do want to point out back on your last page of your notes be- below the song that we sang, uh, you'll see that timeline of Jeremiah's life. That's helpful just so you have an idea of, of how these things fit together. Uh, chapter 25, where we just um, read, is probably, well, it's the fourth year of Jehoiakim. It's, it's when Jeremiah is 40 years old, where he's warning of the 70 years captivity. So if, if Jeremiah was called as a 17-year-old lad and he's been prophesying for 23 years, can you imagine uh, that this, this is where he's, he's at? He's on his third king now, and the people continue to not listen, continue to forsake the Lord. Um, all right. Um, take a look at those other, other themes. We don't have time but to just uh, point them out, and I am certain that I have left out some portion of Jeremiah 2 to 25 that is your favorite, that you love. Um, just go ahead and write it in your notes and, and add it to, uh, to your files as well. And let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have recorded for us uh, Jeremiah's ministry to your people in Judah. Thank you for the warning that uh, we must take seriously, that we must not forsake you, that we will become what we behold, that if we go after things that, even good things, but that are empty, we will become emptiness itself. Um, And Father, thank you for the reminder that uh, you, even in your chastisement and even in the discipline you bring to your people, are merciful, and that you keep every one of your promises for your glory and for the good of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen.